0: So, Philippians chapter 2, and I haven't even looked at this that they put up. That looks very good. Thank you for doing that, guys. So, to the back of me. So, Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 through 18, and it reads like this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as light in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Verse 17, yes. And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice in me. And so those of you who have gone through the epistle uh, that was written to the Philippian believers, we know it is an epistle of joy. The word joy or rejoice is used some 16 times. In this epistle, and we also know many of us that it is a prison epistle. Paul, who is under house arrest there in Rome, he's chained to a, a Roman guard, um, he and in that uh, home that imprisonment would last about two years. And so he's getting towards the end of that two years. He knows that he's going to be soon going before um, Caesar Nero, and so. He's very fond of these believers in Philippi. He says a lot of good things about them. And so and he wants them to know as he, he gets into this epistle that he's doing okay. Matter of fact, he says in verse 12, he says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me, and that term happened to me, he's talking about the things that have dominated my life. The things that have dominated my life have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it, is, that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. So he's saying, look, you don't have to be upset about me. I'm doing okay. What has happened to me is actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And that word fur- furtherance, it's the word trailblazer. And and it's the word that they would use when the Roman army would go through a wooded area. They would rip down trees or whatever they had to to be able to march through that area. Trailblazing. He says, it it has turned out for the trailblazing of the gospel. And he wants them to know that he is having tremendous influence on those palace guards in the household of Caesar. Now, can you imagine being chained to Paul? And a lot of historians in, in, uh, believed that it just wasn't regular guards, that it was actually a group known as the Praetorium that was guarding him. This would be a very elite group. Caesar Augustus started it, about a thousand of them, and then Caesar Nero would continue that. And so here they are, they're like the SEAL Team Six, you know, the IDF Special Forces. Uh, very elite group of guys. They were part of the government, they were wealthy you didn't mess with them you didn't come close to them you didn't mess with them and some historians believe that's who was guarding paul and so here's paul he's saying i'm trailblazing the gospel right in the middle of political Rome, which i maybe never would have had a chance if i were free you know and these guys i could just imagine you know, and you know that Paul witnessed to him because he did what? He witnessed to everybody, didn't he? <laughs> that was Paul. And they're probably saying, Man, this guy. You know, Paul little historians say he was probably a little short, wasn't much to look at, had a crooked nose or whatever. And these guys are coming after a six hour shift and are saying there's something special about him. He's hard as nail. But he has a spirit that's just so sweet. And in that, you know, Paul is telling these believers, and he's telling us, look, we can't have control of the circumstances that happen to us. If anything that we have learned in the last two, two and a half years, because of the pandemic, that things can change very fast, can't they? They can change fast. And so Paul here is showing us that we don't always have control of the circumstances that happen to you, but you can be controlled of the work that God is doing in you. And he had this tremendous influence on the household of Caesar. Even at the end of this epistle, you know, he says, and all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. An amazing, amazing thing that I think sometimes we skip when we look at the book of Philippians. So Paul here... He starts verse 12. He's giving them a series of exhortations here. And he starts with the therefore. Now, of course, whenever we see a therefore, we do what? We stop to see what it's there for. And so what Paul is doing here is he's referring back to chapter 1, verse 27. So if you're a note taker, circle that verse. Because it's a very important verse in the book of Philippians. Because he says, as he starts these exhortations, he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what Paul is doing is he's challenging the Philippian church to walk as Christ walked. Much like the apostle John, he said in 1 John, in his first epistle, 1 John 2, six, He who says he abides at him ought himself also walk as he walked. So Paul, he says in this epistle to the Philippian believers, let your conduct... Or in other words, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel. Imitate Christ is what he's saying. And he goes on as he gets into chapter 2. And he starts saying, don't be doing anything with striving or with selfish ambition or with conceit. He starts talking about unity. Looking at the unity of the body. That was very important for Paul. Paul often talked about unity. Unity. And and the thing of it is, is that's important. We, um, We have had, I think, in the last two years, we've always had visitors come to Calvary Chapel. But we have had, I think, more visitors in the last two years that have come. And they hadn't been to church in a long, long time. Or they hadn't been to church at all. And the one thing that blesses me about so many of you is that you guys come here And you pray for each other. And you encourage each other. And you serve each other. And you're doing all those one another's for each other and stuff. There was a nurse that was coming here. She was only able to come, you know, about a month. She was a traveling nurse. And it wasn't too long ago. And I remember on her last Sunday, she said, you know what? You guys at Calvary Chapel, you guys love well. And that's important. And when we talked about unity of the church, look, it's not that we all think the same thing and have the same, you know, thoughts on everything, you know. The one thing that brings us all together right here this morning and every Sunday morning and other groups is Jesus Christ himself, isn't it? I mean, you guys wouldn't want to hang out with somebody like me if it wasn't for the Lord. We love well. And so if they come into this place and they see backbiting they see discontent. You know what? They're going to recognize it, those who had not been to church in a long time or never been to church. Because you know why? It's out there in the world. And I'm so glad that you guys are a blessing that they can come in here and feel God's presence. This really needs to be a sanctuary, doesn't it? It really does. And I hope it is for you guys as well. So he says, let this be... Uh, in you this mind be in you let this attitude be in you is what he's talking about then he starts talking about the kenosis the incarnation jesus being the perfect example of humility putting on human skin god being fully god emptying himself but remaining fully god Being highly exalted, as he says, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 12 here in chapter 2, therefore, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in absent Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling or with awe or reverence. Is what he's saying here. And maybe there's somebody out there thinking, you know, what is this about? I mean, I got to work for my salvation? Is This important. That's not what it's saying. That's not at all what it's saying. And as we look at verses 12 and 13 this morning, verse 12 has an incredible measure of human responsibility in it. And verse 13 has an incredible measure of God's sovereignty in it. And Paul has no problem putting both of them to to this page. And he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not saying you've got to live your life in a way that earns salvation. He's not saying that at all. He's keeping in line with what he told the Ephesian believers in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand... That we should walk with them, and I know a lot of, particularly non-believers, when they look, you know, when they think about when when they're going to die, what's going to happen is that God is going to um, put all their good on one side of a scale, and then He's going to take all their bad and put it on the other side of a scale, and if the good outweighs the bad, then they get heaven, and if the bad outweighs the good. They get hell. And that's not what Paul is talking about here at all. He's writing to believers. He's not writing to unbelievers. Again, he's not saying work out your salvation or work up your salvation. You know, I'm going to huff and I'm going to puff and I'm going to get that salvation and conquer it. And he says work out your own salvation. And when you see that in the classical Greek, it's used in the classical Greek to describe a mathematician Writing on a math, writing on a mathematical equation, all the way out to the end. Work this all the way out to the end is what he's saying, and the idea is that God has planted into you a new birth. He's made us brand new. It's an incredible thing. Matter of fact, even as uh, as he has promised, it's one of my favorite verses in chapter one, verse six, where he says, "Being confident in this very thing." That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a promise for you and me this morning. You have all the riches of Christ inside of you, he would tell the Ephesian believers. And God has planted all that is uh, working out in your salvation. And this is important. It has nothing to do, what he's saying here, with your justification, okay? It has to do with your sanctification. And we know justification being that as one comes to Christ, because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have broken God's law. There's only one person that ever walked this earth, and that was the man, Christ Jesus. And so he lived that perfect life. He was the perfect sacrifice. And he would give himself for us that we might be able to come and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I come to you and I want to have a right relationship with God and it comes through you. And I know that you died and we're buried and that you arose again. And I give you my life. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. At that time as we're born again, you know, we are declared righteous I justification just as if I've never sinned. So that's, as believers, is who you are positionally, right? Positionally. Practically, do you still sin? Yeah, we do. My grandson at the children's festival in the park last month, uh, some of the ladies were uh, explaining that to him, and he says, I don't sin, <laughs> I don't sin. You sure? Yeah. So I had to have a talk with him a little bit (laughs) to assure him that he's in the camp with the rest of us. I think he's learning that. (laughs) Justified. He's not talking about that. Justification. What he's talking about is our sanctification. Now that we are believers, now that we're brand new, that we're born again that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's a lifelong process. And so what's inside of you is, is eternal, the very life of Christ himself. And so Paul says you need to work that out. You need to be who you are. You need to see that it is displayed, that it's demonstrated, that others observe it. As a Christian, you know, we can profess to be believers, but it should be seen in one's life. We should be an example of working out our salvation. This may sound silly, but I think it's a pretty good illustration. A couple years ago, I went fly fishing. First time I've never been fly fishing, I didn't have any equipment. I just grabbed Pastor Jeff's fly and tried it. I liked it. I really liked it a lot. So I thought, I'm going to learn to catch fish on a fly rod. And so for my birthday, I got everything I needed. It was a gift. I got the fly rod, I got the reel, I got the waders, I got the boots that go with it, I got the flies, everything I needed to be successful in catching a fish. And that first year I went, I was terrible. I didn't catch any fish all year. I'd go out there and I'd be fly fishing and slap, 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 slap the water. The fish would be going, you know, scattering away from me. And, and I'd be all tangled up. And I didn't know what fly to use. I had no idea. Falling in the water, getting all wet. These guys that were with me would just go down the line. They didn't want to be seen with me, you know. I'm, it was a mess. But I learned it. And I kept trying. And I grew in it. You know, we got the gift of salvation. And as we grow, it takes time. Our sanctification, we learn and we grow and we mature in the salvation of God. And it's a lifelong process. You have the gift. You have eternal life. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. Now you hunger and thirst for the word of God and for righteousness God is done and he's doing those things in you. So the exhortation to the Philippian church and to, to us, Calvary Chapel, this morning is to work out into demonstration just practical Christianity into being followers of Jesus Christ. That's verse 12. Now you get to verse 13. For it is God who works. And that word work is where we get the word Energy. So what he's saying here in verse 13 now is God is the one who provides in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And we know that the God of the Bible is a person. And the God of the Bible is the creator of everything. And scripture tells us that the God of the Bible seeks a personal relationship with men and women. And he wants us to know him intimately. He wants us to know him so intimately that we become like him. So he gives us his word and his spirit to be able to accomplish that. And here's the thing. The God of the Bible finds deep satisfaction and joy assisting the believer to do that which is his own will. He loves you. He cares for you. He takes up residence in the life of a believer to affect in that believer the very expression of his will. God is the energizer. He's not like the energizer bunny. He's not a fuzzy bunny, you know, never runs out of power. He is the one who drives our sanctification. And His power drives us towards Christ's likeness. And His power helps us in pursuing holiness, righteousness, and godliness. And it sustains us. And it drives us to glorification. So, how much power does He have? He has all the power. No limits to his energy. He saved us. He sanctified us. He's going to bring us to glorification. And he's going to move us towards Christ's likeness. There is so much power available that he is able to say to those Ephesian believers in Ephesians 3.20, now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in what? works in us. God can and does accomplish through you those things which are unimaginable and unthinkable and things beyond your ability. And he's the power behind that. And it's the sovereignty of God. So he says this very reason, you work out your salvation with reverence, with awe, conforming into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You know what? He wants us to be more like Christ. He doesn't want us to be like we were before we saved. That's not the likeness that he would have for us. So we walk like we, he walk. It should be apparent in our lives, you know, that God is energizing you to know what is right and to perform those things. And you might be thinking, that's nice, Pastor John, but, you know, I have days where I still fail. I have days where I come home and yell at the wife. I want to kick the dog. Whatever the case is, I still sin. And Paul said in Galatians 5, 16, 17, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So you do not do the things that you wish. And Paul had told the Galatian believers also, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He would write to those believers in Second Corinthians. He would say that we have become new creations. Old things pass away, new things come. And you might be thinking, well, if I'm a new creation, why is there still sin? Because you have this new creation that's incarcerated in unredeemed flesh. And until you get that unredeemed flesh out of the way, when you are glorified, the Lord comes back or raptures us, you're always going to have the battle. Paul talked about that battle in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Why is that, Paul? It's sin in me. Okay, where is that, Paul? It's in my flesh. My spirit has been changed. I have the new man in me, but it's living in this old house, this old tent. That's the battle for Christians. It's not a battle for unbelievers. And think about it, and I often have told people that as believers, you are ruined for the world. What do you mean by that? Well, it used to be when you were a non-believer, if you wanted to go out and carnal out, wanted to dabble with the things of the world, you know, didn't bother you. But now as Christians, if you want to do that, you have the Holy Spirit that brings conviction to you. So if you want to dabble, you want to carnal out in anything, you know, it bothers you. You've been ruined for the world. He gives us the, you know, the Holy Spirit. The power of the flesh is strong, but the power of the Spirit is greater and there's never a time in your life where you arrive at perfection or you're at, you know, a permanently spiritual place where you never sin again. We never overcome sin totally, but we overcome it as a pattern of life by walking in the spirit. And it's a daily walk. And it's the spirit that's going to produce in us humility and purity contentment, faith, and good works. And it produces love, and it gives you wisdom as you come and know the truth. And one more thing before we move on. Notice in verse 12 it says, work out your own salvation. This exhortation is personal, and it's certainly written in plurals, but he's writing to the church You know, he's writing to the church, but the exhortation is relative to unity, and there can never be unity in the church unless there is humility. Individuals that practice, that are humble. So these are individual exhortations. It doesn't say that we are to work out other people's salvation, everybody else's. And look, when we see that somebody is struggling, that there's sin in their lives, we as a brother and sister want to be able to go up to them and put our arms around them, and we want to bring correction to them, don't we? And we want to show them in Scripture, we want to do this in love, because it's love that wants to bring correction. Isn't it? It's love that wants to do that, so we do that so they can get back into a place of being blessed by the Lord. But a big contribution that we make to the overall unity of the body of Christ is to work out your own salvation, to work out what Christ has done in your life. So it has manifestation. And again, you do that with reverence and with awe. And know this, the Lord sees everything that we do and everything that we say. You know, as David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, he would say, before you, God, I, I've done this great evil in your sight. So there isn't anything that he sees that doesn't see that what we do or doesn't hear what we have to say. So the language that we use as Christians should be different than the language that you used before you were a Christian, even in traffic, The way you live your life as people seeing seeing you should be different than it is before you were a Christian. Everything we do is seen by him. And everything we do should be in the context of our understanding of him and in the context of his love. So there are those who might say, so what does that look like? How do we measure that? Well, he goes on. He says there in verse 14, He says, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as light in this world. So he says, you know, this is the way it should look like out there in this dark world. Charles Spurgeon was one that said of this verse that to see a ship in the sea is a beautiful thing, but to see the sea in the ship is not a good thing. And he says that to see a Christian sailing above everything out in the world is the way it's supposed to be. To see the world in the Christian is not a good thing. So what does it look like, guys? What does it look like when the world observes us? Are we light? And the thing about light, you don't hear light, you see it. You see it. So what does it look like? What is observable about the Christian who is letting the great work of God has done working out as God has energized us in that? Well, the first of all he says that we should do all things without what? Complaining and disputing and murmuring. Ouch. <laughs> That's a tough one for me. I got to admit. I'm getting better at it, but I still have my category of things that I like to complain about. I don't like to shovel snow in the winter. Complain, complain, complain. Somebody swiped my donut, I think I was going to have after third service here. Complain, 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 murmur. I wish it didn't say all things, but it does. Jesus being the perfect illustration, he did at times have righteous indignation. There would be at times that he would rebuke the religious leaders. But you don't see in scripture Jesus griping and complaining, going to dinner and saying, Wow, well, what is this that you're serving me? People who serve us should see a complaining, murmuring way of life in us. And in verse fifteen he says, that you may become in the language it reads, you should be becoming, that is, that's the way you're hitting, that you should become blameless and harmless. Blameless speaks of moral purity, not perfection. But no accusation stick is going to stick to you. Being harmless is not being one who causes injury in any way. I look at it as don't be in a hurry to get in a big argument or a fight. You should live your lives with moral purity. I mean, look at the world today and what's going around us. Who do you want to define morality when it comes to your kids and your grandkids and your nieces and your nephews and those who are close to you and those that you work with, perhaps? Do you want the world defining what morality is? I mean, we live in a day where good is called evil and evil is called good. And he's encouraging the Philippians and us to move forward in these things, in these directions that we take heed to them, to be without fault, might have a version that says rebuke. So that the world, when they're looking at us, they're not saying, you Christians, you're not any different. And that we are shining as light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That describes what we see on the news isn't it, all the time. Crooked means off target, means not straight morally. Perverse is worse. It means to be twisted. And he says, You're in the middle of a culture that is crooked and perverse. That's our days we live in too, isn't it? So we live out what we believe. Again, not in perfection but it should be consistent with how we live. We're called to be light, guys. And I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again because I like it. (laughs) But during the Blitz in World War II, when the Germans would bomb London, that was before the United States got into the war, that when those German airplanes would come, they would have total blackout of the city. And you weren't even allowed to have a light that like a little flashlight or a little lantern, You weren't allowed to do that because what British intelligence found out at that time is that as those German pilots were up in the air, they could see a, a light a, as small as a small flashlight from 10 miles away. We're living in a world that is getting darker and darker. And you might be here this morning thinking, Lord, you know, Pastor John, I just have a little light. It's good. Because it's going to be seen. It's going to be seen. Our moral standards are to be better than the world. Our behavior is to be light that shines in the midst of a dark world. And so he goes on, he says there in verse 16, he says, you know, holding fast to the word of life. In the common Greek, You know, it was most commonly used when somebody came to your house for dinner and you offered them a cup of wine. That was traditional. It was an offer. And he says, we're we're holding forth the word of life. The idea for us, us is that when we, you know, perhaps have a relative or a friend that comes over, an unbeliever, won't be long. For it's Thanksgiving, right? How many of us have somebody over that's an unbeliever in the family? Or other occasions, you know? Used to be I'd tell Becca, my wife, i said, all right, we've got some unbelievers coming over. So you tackle them high, I'll tackle them low, you know? We'll take <laughs> them out. <laughs> we'll get the gospel down then. You know, when you're stuffing the turkey, be sure not only stuffing goes in there, but some gospel tracts go in there. So they'll chew on that a little bit as well. You know, (laughs) it's hard with family and friends, those who are close, isn't it? It doesn't work well to argue or force the gospel on them. And here it says we are to be ones that hold forth, hold fast. We're offering the word of life. When people watch us, that's what we're doing. We're offering that. They see a difference. They see the light shining in us. They may not even understand, but they'll ask. And thus it's time that we speak. Your performance, your offering, the word of life, because people are lost in the darkness and they're hungry for something. Paul says, if you're doing that, if you're living bigger, uh, biblically, you know, if that's true, I'm going to rejoice in the day of Christ Jesus. If you're somebody that's carnal out, you're into the things of the world, then I've labored in vain. Hold fast to the word of life, the gospel of Christ. I'll be happy in the day of Christ. We know the Lord's coming back soon, don't we? He's coming back soon. And then in verse 17, as we finish up here this morning, he says that, yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice in me. We could talk a lot about this and drink offerings and stuff. Paul saying I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Here's the thing. Paul has been, you know, under house arrest for almost two years. He's going to go before Caesar Nero. He doesn't know what the outcome is. He doesn't know if he's going to get executed. And so when he uses that phrase, you know, being poured out is indicating, in some believe, the possibility that he thinks he might be executed. But he presents himself as an illustration of sacrificial joy. Not in his death, but in his life. And he poured into these people. So I have a question this morning as we end here. What are you pouring into? And who are you pouring into? Every day we get to wake up. What a blessing it is because we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of God's kingdom, aren't we? And it doesn't matter who's in the White House it doesn't matter how crazy it gets. you get to wake up in the morning and you get to pour into somebody. Are you pouring in the things of the Lord, to your kids? to your grandkids, to your nieces and to your nephews? To somebody in your family that's not saved? We get that opportunity to pour into them. to show them light in the midst of a dark world. And that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing work. There is, a lot of times, you are the only Bible that people see. You're the only Bible that people see in the way that you live your lives. And so we get the privilege to represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So you keep holding on. You keep pouring into... And you keep being light barriers. Because the days, they're getting dark. But the Lord still has us here. And he wants to do a work in you. In spite of the circumstances that you might be going through. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for these wonderful truths that you've told us, Lord. And Lord, we do desire to do what is pleasing in your sight that you've given us everything that we need. So help us, Lord, to be ones as we come to you every day, as we read your word, that we're taking it in, that we would be ones to be living a life in obedience to you, Lord, because of our love for you. Help us, Lord, in those things, and we know that we're never going to get to a place of perfection, but your spirit is the one that moves us forward to be more like you. I pray that that would be the desire for each and every one of us, Lord. To be more like you. To be ones that love. That we would be ones, Lord, to have our eyes open for divine appointments. And that we would be a testimony to those that we're around in the way that we live. I ask, Father, that you would be strong on our behalf in those times when we feel weak and we know you are always there and we would have a desire, Lord, to be pleasing to you. You've given us everything that we need and you've given us a right relationship with you that we could never do on our own. So, Father, teach us, give us wisdom direct our path. say, this is the way I want you to walk, walk in it. Turn left, turn right. I pray if there's anybody here that's listening to this or here this morning that is not born again, I just pray, Lord, that they know that salvation is for them, offered to them, Lord, as they come to you and admit their sins, Lord. Say it. And come by faith and believe that you are the perfect sacrifice to bring right relationship with God by the shedding of your blood. That you died and were buried and rose again, Lord. And that in those things that they come and say, Lord, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. That they are born again and they have a new beginning. Father, do that work in each and one of our hearts. Continue to minister to us. Continue to minister to that body in Windsor, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. Only you are worthy to be praised, Lord. Guide our week, guide our conversations, the things that we do. May we do everything in the context of your word and of your love. And so we thank you. Help us to be more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.